Now, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would breathe life into your word to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Well, uh, yeah, as we had fun with the microphone today, I was reminded of a conversation Josh and I had last weekend, um, or last week, yeah, last Sunday. You know, we had Paul here speaking, and he was very clear, easy to hear as he had that little over-the-ear thing that uh, Josh was telling me works much better. And, and Josh is right, but I don't want to wear it. Uh, <laughs> because I don't want to get a haircut. I don't have ears. Um <laughs> The last time I got a haircut, which may seem like a distant memory to many of you, uh, the last time I was there in the barber chair, my barber was talking to me about a book that she had been reading. It was about grace, and it was written by Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. And so I was very excited to say, I know him, or at least I, I knew him, and I had to share the news that he has now passed into glory but we talked about how he was the Archbishop of Cape Town uh, in the Anglican Church, how my father worked with him, how I've even been to his house a number of times, a very, very large estate, and how my parents tell me that he was a, a very lovely man and that every time he met with them, he would ask after us, after my sisters and myself, by name. However, we also recognize that Desmond Tutu is more known for his political contributions than contributions to the church, that his theology was very, very political. And this was because that was what was needed in the place and time that he was called to minister in South Africa during apartheid. The gospel that Desmond Tutu preached was that of Christ the Liberator, now, when I started attending seminary, one of the first courses that all students were required to take was Christian Thought and Culture. And the course description explains that C2C, as it's known, is about exploring the good news that God became human so that we could become fully human by becoming like Christ. The course explores how this good news has shaped the Christian faith as well as its impact on culture and explores what it means to live out this Christian story comprehensively and with integrity in the midst of cultures shaped to some or a greater extent by counter-stories. What is it like to live the Christian life in a culture that opposes it? A couple weeks ago, we looked at the Creed's declaration that God created the heavens and the earth, all that is, invisible and invisible. And I shared from one of the lectures from this course from Dr. Paul Thiel about various responses to how evolutionary theories compare with the creation account in the Bible. Now, the first lecture in this course, CTC, was about the affirmation in the Creed that we're going to look at today. Declaration from our shared statement of faith that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. This first C2C lecture is described as exploring what it means in the broadest terms to confess Jesus as Lord, 
that this is a statement that lays claim to all of human thought and activity, public as well as private, a statement that lays claim to all of history and indeed the entire created world. So it's surprising to hear the lecturer share that throughout our course we would be looking at the various meanings that confessing Jesus is Lord has for Christians across the world and throughout history. One of the books we read was this one, Yuroslav Pelikan's Jesus Through the Centuries. And each chapter looks at various approaches to Jesus that reveal various needs that our Lord has fulfilled in various times and places. And the chapters include exploring Jesus' role as the rabbi, as the light to the Gentiles, as the universal man, as the mirror of the eternal, as the king of kings, the prince of peace, but also the liberator. And that chapter is described as looking at how throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, from Tolstoy to Mahatma Gandhi to Martin Luther King to Desmond Tutu, Jesus' prophetic opposition to the economic and social injustice of his time has been used as the dynamic for revolutionary change in the ordering of human relations, public as well as private. So Christianity does mean different things to different Christians, and that was a bit unsettling to hear. But the lecture concluded with an affirmation that set some of my initial unease at rest. The affirmation that the one thing that unites Christians throughout the world, throughout history, is the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And today, as we come back to our journey through the creed, we're going to take a look at what that means. So it has been a couple of weeks since we visited the creed together, and last time we looked at how Scripture repeatedly affirms that all Christians are children of God. This was a repeated theme in our journey through Romans. But we were also reminded that Jesus is still God's Son in a unique, one-of-a-kind sense. As the Nicene Creed puts it, Jesus is the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. And we looked at how though the human language can't do justice to the transcendent, we understand begotten to mean that the Son comes from the Father. He's dependent on the Father, is brought about by the Father. But this is in a unique, one-of-a-kind way. It wasn't an event, it's a perpetual, eternal state God the Son has always come eternally from the Father, has always been with God, has always been God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, never made, never created. He has always eternally been of one being with the Father, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, and through him and by him and for him, all things were made. And so we affirm along with Scripture, along with the Gospel of John, along with the disciple who is incorrectly referred to as Doubting Thomas, but was the first to confess that Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is the eternal Word and Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. This is what we affirm when we stand and say together the words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. 
And today we're going to dive into what we mean when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. So let's first look at what we mean when we call Jesus Christ. As some of you may be aware, Christ isn't Jesus' surname. Matthew 1.18 explains, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is taken from the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, and it means God saves. And we believe that in Jesus, God has come to dwell among us as one of us to save us from the power of sin and death. We'll look at this a little more another time, but today we're going to look at how, as Paul writes in Philippians 2, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to God the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We believe in Jesus, the name above all names. What do we mean when we call him Christ? As I say, Christ isn't his surname. Well, we did just look at Matthew 128, which reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, but the verse is also presented in other manuscripts as now the birth of Jesus of the Christ took place in this way. It's also presented in newer translations as this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. And that's our clue. We get the English word Christ from Christos, which is the Greek term for the Hebrew title Messiah, which means anointed one. So when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we are affirming he is the Messiah. Last week, we looked at the affirmation that Jesus is God. We looked at a number of passages from Scripture that clearly declare Jesus' co-eternal, co-divine status with the Father, that he is God. However, I was reading an article uh, entitled, What Does It Mean to Say Jesus is Messiah? by a man named Walter Russell. And he writes that what is also clear is that while Jesus' identity as the Messiah includes his identity as God, as God made man, God with us, the Bible is much more focused on proving that Jesus is the Messiah than it is on proving that Jesus is God. This is the reason there are countless passages that demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Davidic Messiah, King of Israel. So for this reason, Christ is a title, an office. It's not part of Jesus' name. Whenever the title Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus or Lord Jesus Christ is used, we're saying Jesus the Messiah or Messiah Jesus or Lord Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, came into the world when the people of God had lost their land, they'd lost their political independence, 
they were enduring Roman occupation. And the prophets of God had promised that God would send a Savior, a Messiah, to save them from oppression. However, as we often reflect upon, Jesus did not come to liberate Israel from the type of oppression that he thought, that they thought he would. Because Jesus is God, his salvation was different from what they were expecting. Because Jesus is God, he didn't come to deal with government, he came to deal with sin. The salvation he offered wasn't political, it was eternal. Jesus was not the political liberator that the people were hoping for or expecting. However, to say that his salvation, that his liberation from oppression, that this revolution was entirely non-political, isn't entirely accurate. Archbishop Desmond Tutu wasn't coming out of left field with his message to the oppressed of South Africa. As we mentioned, Jesus did oppose the economic and social injustice of his time. And he was charged and tried with political subversion, inciting rebellion against Rome, sedition, treason against the emperor because of his claim to be the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. We read in the Old Testament that prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, was anointed with the Holy Spirit by God the Father at the beginning of his ministry as the Christ. And this means that this unique anointing makes him uniquely authorized and empowered to bring about God's kingdom on earth. Our catechism explains that he does this by perfectly fulfilling the roles of prophet, priest, and king over his church, and over all creation. So Jesus, revealing himself to be the Messiah, the Christ, throughout the Gospels, was also acclaimed to be the one who was anointed to rule as prophet, priest, and king over his church and over all creation. And this is why we call Jesus Christ Lord. As we heard from our reading from Ephesians this morning, Jesus is seated at God's right hand on his throne in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion of this world, far above every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. As we already heard from Philippians 2, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. And Paul continues to explain that this is so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And this is why our catechism to be a Christian shares that by accepting Jesus as Messiah, We are at the same time accepting and acknowledging Jesus' divine authority over the church as well as over all creation, including over all societies and their leaders. 
Accepting what scripture has to say that Jesus is the Messiah means accepting his divine authority over every aspect of our lives, both public and private. And this in turn means we surrender our entire lives to serving him and seeking to live in a way that pleases him. This is what we and all Christians throughout the world, throughout history mean when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And because of this, though Jesus wasn't the type of political liberator that the people were expecting, his claim to be the Messiah wasn't without political implications. As Tom Wright shares, the Christian confession proclaims that Jesus is Lord in such a way as to imply that Caesar is not. So early Christians who confessed Jesus as Lord were thus refusing to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Worse, there were those who were going about spreading this new religion that taught that Caesar was not Lord. So they were seen as rebels, dissenters, and this often led to their arrest, sometimes their torture, sometimes their execution. And we've been hearing from Paul's letter to the Philippians from Philippians 2, this letter that Paul wrote in prison when he was awaiting imminent execution because he had been spreading this new religion that undermined Caesar's lordship, that was stirring revolutionary change in the ordering of human relations, public as well as private. Now again, I'll remind us that we're not gathered here today for a lecture on interesting historical facts, nor even the historical background of the New Testament. We're gathered to proclaim the gospel, to celebrate the gospel, who God is and what he's done. So why am I sharing all of this? How does it all relate to the gospel? How does it apply to us here in Canada today? What does the plight of early Christians in first century Roman Empire or even the oppression of Christians in the late 20th century in South Africa have to do with us today? Again, confessing that Jesus is Lord was subversive in the first century Roman Empire because it means Caesar is not. Confessing that Jesus is Lord was subversive in the late 20th century South Africa because it meant that the ruling apartheid government was not the ultimate authority over the lives of those who are being so brutally oppressed. But in our context, context in Canada, None of us really have a problem with confessing that Jesus is Lord because it means that Justin Trudeau is not. Am I, feel free to push back on that. <laughs> you know, we're certainly not going to get thrown into prison, tortured, or possibly executed because we are always unhappy with our government. And yet, here in Canada, here in Victoria, here in Langford, to confess Jesus is Lord, is incredibly subversive. It's becoming increasingly more so, and many are becoming increasingly nervous to do so. Why? Because confessing Jesus is Lord doesn't mean that Trudeau is not. Confessing Jesus is Lord 
It's confessing that we are not. Declaring that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, public and private, means we are not. And that is subversive. It is in direct opposition to the counter-story that our culture is not just suggesting, not just preaching, but is beginning to enforce to an increasingly alarming degree. So what does confessing that Jesus is Lord and we're not mean in our lives here now in this post-pandemic, secular, divided nation? It's different for everybody. And I'll just try to give a few examples, but really it, it does mean something different for everybody. For For some, for increasingly many, it may mean humbling ourselves, admitting, accepting, confessing that the very countercultural confession that we can't just be whoever we want, do whatever we want, and anyone who opposes us in this is a villain, so they either need to bow down to our will or we'll cancel them, we'll shun them socially. For Some in the church confessing that Jesus is Lord and we are not means putting aside our own desires, our own agendas, what we want our faith to look like, what we want our church to look like, what we want God and the church to do for us. Setting all this aside and saying, not my will, but yours be done. For others, It means asking ourselves, what is God calling us to do? Us as a church, us together, in our lives, both public and private, as we walk together in the footsteps of Jesus Christ our Lord, as he leads us to becoming fully human by becoming more and more like him. Confessing that Jesus is Lord and we are not means... Acknowledging Jesus' divine authority over every aspect of our lives, both public, both when we gather here and private. It means surrendering our entire lives to serving Him and seeking to live in a way that pleases Him. Becoming a disciple, following Jesus, accepting and acknowledging Him as our leader, as our Lord, as our King, means humbling ourselves, as he did, to follow the will of God, as he did. And this means, as we heard our Lord Jesus Christ say in our Gospel reading this morning, picking up our cross, as he did, and following him wherever he chooses to lead us. It means not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We confess him as Lord of every aspect of our lives, our life together as a church, our private lives as we go out each week. We acknowledge that confessing this means following him, And we also confess that sometimes we find that difficult to surrender every aspect of our lives to our Lord.
We pray forgiveness for this. We turn away from it and turn to you. And we ask, as we seek to follow you, that you would guide us. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would inspire us and guide us on how you would have us live, not just in our own lives, but together as a church. Would you show us your will that we can obey and follow it? Pray this in Jesus' name.